Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in mindfulness and values-based approaches to therapy. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics from psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Diana. Hi, Debbie. It's good to see you today. It's great to see you, too. Um we just figured out the other day that this is our one-year anniversary of doing our podcast. We released our very first episode just about a year ago in November of 2016. Congratulations. I can't believe we've made it this far, and it's been really fun. Things have changed and evolved since we've uh, started out, but I, I think we have a nice body of work here, and it's been fun to just be connecting with you regularly and exploring all the topics that we have. So go back and look at some, listen to some of our, our oldies but goodies. What, what is one of your favorite oldies but goodies? Oh my gosh. You know, I really like, oh, that's hard to decide. There's a lot that I really like. I really like the food ones. Those were pretty recent. Mm-hmm. Some, let me think the old ones. Which ones do you like? I, my two favorites are the Huga and the <gasps> oh. uh, Habits. Habits. Yeah, actually, I re-listened to the Habits one recently for another talk I gave, and I was like, that was good. Yeah. Was well, yeah. and thanks thanks to you, we've done, we've done 30, this is our 33rd episode. We've done 32 so far. And also thanks to all of our listeners that have um, been with us along the way. It's been, yeah. it's been fun. So, so toasting to everyone here on our one year and, and sort of in line with that, we're wanting to reach out to listeners and hear from you. So we're having a a mailbag episode. We'd love for you to send in questions, whether they're questions about psychology in general or about uh, being a psychologist or uh, anything that you're really interested in that you want us either to do some research around or share some personal information around, send them in. And we are going to be collecting them by November 20th and reading some of them on the air and then answering your questions. You can send them on Facebook or you can connect to us through our website. There's a contact us uh, section there. So send those in by November 20th and uh, we'll read you on the air. Yeah, it'll be fun. Ask us anything. We may or may not do it on the air, but we probably will. We probably will. We also just want to hear from you because sometimes it's a a one-way show here. So we want to know about the people that are listening to us. Yeah. 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 So today we have an exciting topic. Um, I'm going to be, I'm going to have, I have an episode where I interviewed um, Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn. She's a frequent contributor to the podcast. And we talked about um, how partner relationships can change after kids come along. Um, So that's our topic for today. Diane, I want to start by asking you a question. What do you think? Have Did things change with you and your spouse at all uh, before and after having kids? Well, yes, of course. <laughs> Everything gets turned on its head. And certainly in those first years, things really get turned on their heads. And I think one of the things that I've enjoyed most about having kids is how much it, it has the opportunity to really deepen our relationships. So a lot of people talk about the struggles of having kids and, you know, relationships, but actually there's nothing better on the planet than loving something with somebody else and sharing in that. So all the little things that your children do and the developmental milestones that 
other people could care less about, your spouse really does care about. And so it's nice to to share in that and then also learn about each other as parents because a whole nother side shows up. It kind of shows up a little bit when you have a dog of how your parent, how your uh, spouse is going to parent. Right. <laughs> so Some of the same issues arise. <laughs> same issues around discipline and uh, follow through. Right. <laughs> but uh, but also it's um, it's really nice to 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 uh, see how that how those changes deepen relationships. So, yeah, yeah. It certainly changed a lot in good ways. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that because in this episode, we we do focus a little bit on some of the challenges that often come up. And we have some strategies sort of based on the psychology research um, for folks who might be struggling with this. But I think that it's really important that you that what you just acknowledged, which is that it also has has an opportunity to really um, be a cool experience to have together. Um, so let me just quickly introduce Yael before we get started. So Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn is a clinical psychologist. She has a private practice, and one of her areas of specialty is couples work, which is why this is a great episode to do with her. Um, she's also an assistant professor at Brown University, and she's a mom of three kids. And she's done a lot of work and writing on balancing family life with work, and she's been published on that topic in the New York Times and Psychology Today and some other places. So you can link to her and her writing on our website, offtheclockpsych.com. And she has a book forthcoming. So very happy that she she brought this, um, you know, this episode together with me. Great. I'm excited to listen. This is Debbie Sorens, and I'm very happy today to be talking to our frequent contributor, Yael Schoenbrunn, who is a couples, who, well, she's a therapist out in, on the East Coast, and who does a lot of couples work. And so today we're going to be talking about a topic that's near and dear to both of our hearts, which is the topic of how partner and couple relationships um, sort of change after kids. And we're going to explore some issues that sort of frequently come up for couples in that period you know, between when a baby comes along and, you know, you have a few young kids. And we're going to provide some research-based suggestions, so kind of a ray of hope for anyone who might be struggling with this right now. Um, yeah, El, I think this is, is, in fact, a topic that has both maybe professional and personal relevance for both of us. Is that fair to say? <laughs> Definitely fair to say on my part. Yeah, I, um, as you said, I do a lot of couples therapy and have done a lot of research in the marital world. And then I'm also a parent to three children, the youngest of which just turned one. And I know from both professional and personal perspectives how challenging it is to navigate um, relationships after children arrive, especially in the early years when you're sleep deprived and don't have much time to yourself and certainly don't have much time and energy to direct towards your spouse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I have two kids, one age three and one age five. So I'm a little bit out of the kind of the immediate baby years. But, you know, a couple years ago, I was struggling with a few things related to this this topic. And a friend of mine recommended a book that we're going to talk about a lot today. It's called And Baby Makes Three by um, John Gottman and Julie Gottman, who are psychology researchers who study couples. And um, a friend recommended the book and I took a look at it and I was kind of like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I'm going through right now. It was such, it was just a huge relief, I think, to even just know that I wasn't alone going through some of those challenges. And so I'm actually hoping that this this episode today, some some of our listeners might feel the same way. Like, oh, yeah, there's some familiarity there. Because certainly, you know, even as somebody who, you know, is in this field, I definitely, I actually feel a little funny even doing this episode with all these suggestions because I'm like, huh, there's some areas there where I certainly um, could use some work in my own life. Oh, for sure. I think it's one of the great ironies of being a couples therapist is that I get to sit in my office in my therapist chair and give advice to people and look as if I know exactly how to navigate a relationship perfectly successfully and smoothly. <laughs> and the reality of my own marriage is is a reality, right? I yeah. also struggle and have points at which I get stuck and where my spouse and I get stuck. And I think, um, you know, just because you know how to to 
understand other people's marriages doesn't make it simple to navigate your own. Relationships are so complicated. And I think, you know, once you add children into the mix, it becomes that much more complicated. And I think, um, you know, hopefully it's not disheartening to know that even therapists uh, who are especially trained in this kind of thing, um, also struggle. Hopefully it, it just normalizes the experience. You know, we're all in it together and that, you know, there's some uh, peace that can come with knowing that, you know, it, it's just a challenging time and period in, in the life of a marriage and, and that marriages themselves are complicated. And so you and I started talking about um, this topic um, through some of the work that I'm doing on work and family balance. And you had talked about the Gottman book. And I think I had told you about the, this book that I had started reading with this fantastic title called How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids, which uh, I think I bought it really for the title, but it was written yeah. by a journalist who was struggling in her marriage after having a baby. And she decided to use her journal journalism career um, and, and skill as a platform to understand the problems that she was experiencing, that she and her spouse were experiencing, and then use um, the information that she was able to gather to improve her marriage. And so she wrote this book as a very personal, detailed um, description of her struggle and the strategies that she and her spouse picked up to heal their marriage. And she talks about things, um, you know, ranging from like the research on why relationships become so difficult after children arrive, um, different pieces of therapy that she used. Um, she talks about interviewing an FBI hostage negotiator to develop some skills and how to um, take down her temper and give her husband some strategies to um, help calm her down when she would get really angry. And so it was a pretty interesting book. And, and I think um, it provides a lot of uh, insight into some of the challenges and also some of the research that explains why this is so difficult for couples. Yeah, yeah. Somehow the hostage negotiator thing seems fitting. I, don't know. I just find that funny. <laughs> just quick side note, when I went to pick up that book at the library, my husband was with me and he was a little amused that I was checking out a book called How Not to Hate Your Husband. Yeah, yeah. I had that same experience where I was sitting, I was sitting in bed reading it and my husband sort of gave me the eyebrow. Like, huh. He... he, I, he he and I didn't talk about it too much. I just said it's it's for some research. Yeah. <laughs> we left it at that. <laughs> Don't ask any questions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's start by talking about the problem here. Um, before we move into suggestions, we're going to kind of just do a lay of the land between these books we've been reading. Um, just about about what it is that's so challenging about this this issue. Why is marriage so hard after after young kids and babies sort of come into the mix. And so I wanted to just start by a statistic that I read in the Gottman book, Baby Makes Three, um, which is that, he, so he studied these couples. He, he's mostly known for just general sort of couples and marriage research. And he studies sort of what's the difference between couples who sort of thrive and do really well and couples who have problems. And he can kind of predict who's going to make it and who's not. Um, but what he started to look at was how those people's sort of satisfaction within a a marriage or a couple's relationship changes over time when babies come along. And 67% of couples become very unhappy with each other in the first year with a baby. So that's like a majority of couples who go through a time, at least temporarily, where they feel sort of marital dissatisfaction. And there's a number of factors that, you know, in both of the books that we read that, that may be, you know, a part of this issue. That's right. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things that just can't be emphasized enough is the factor of sleep deprivation when you have a newborn, um, especially the mother, uh, particularly in cases where the mother is nursing. Um, sleep deprivation is a factor, but the reality is it impacts fathers too. And certainly if it's a same-sex spouse, um, the same thing can happen, right? Where both partners are impacted by the baby waking up and having needs sort of every couple of hours. And a lack of sleep causes all sorts of physiological changes in your physiology. Um, one of the things that happens, uh, research has shown that the amygdala, which is the control center for emotion in the brain, becomes more reactive, whereas the rational prefrontal cortex 
portion of the brain, which um, t- typically is able to put things into context, is less able to do its job. And so there's these changes in the way that our brains are able to function that causes us to actually focus more on negative experiences and to feel and sometimes behave more irrationally. I can definitely relate to that one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think most of us probably can just have personal experience how when you're sleep deprived, it just affects how you feel, your mood, your physical, you know, how you're feeling physically. And so it's not a surprise that that's, you know, that that plays a role. Just people tend to get more irritable and, and grouchy. And, (laughs) and, you know, on top of that, not only are we kind of walking around with just less baseline sleep, we're also there's just a lot to do. There's extra tasks when you have young kids, when you have a baby and even, you know, kind of toddlers, preschoolers, there are just, there's extra work, you know, there's extra laundry, there's extra dishes, there's a lot of direct child oriented work. And so in the Gottman book, which I have right here in my hand, he, um, Gottman, they have a list of all the different, trying to flip through and find it. Um, they have a they they generated a list of like all the different household and baby related tasks that people have to kind of keep on top of when they have young kids and so i can just you know the dishes so there's a whole list things like taking out the garbage making kids lunches um taking care of a crying baby taking kids to school i mean it goes on and on and actually what's what's so funny in the book is that he says they used to have a longer list that was over 600 items and they would give this to these couples and be like, okay, you know, sort of who does what, and are there things you can do to make this, you know, streamline this or make this just more equal. But when people are given the 600 list, it just made everyone like so depressed (laughs) that they stopped giving it to people. (laughs) Cause even just reading the list that's in the book, I'm like, oh my gosh, no wonder. Like, it's just a lot of work. And so on top of the sleep deprivation, people are overwhelmed. And sometimes both partners feel like they're working so, so hard and they feel underappreciated by each other because some of the work you do goes unnoticed or, you know, your partner might not, might even notice, but not say anything, which can just lead to this feeling of like, gosh, I did the dishes again and no one even, that's, no one even cares, you know? Um, And there can also be certainly um, some inequality in how that, those household tasks are distributed, which can also, you know, just be a source of frustration. Absolutely. Yeah. And I always like to cite for the couples that I see this um, social psychology study that asked couples what percent of the household tasks they take on. And inevitably the, um, the percentage would always add up to more than a hundred because right. people always think that they're doing so much and, and often feel, as you said, underappreciated or, or sort of that their contributions are invisible. That's um, certainly a common problem for couples in general and, and more so for couples with very young children, because as you said, and Gottman, um, Gottman's list suggests that there are, is just so much to do so yeah. much to do. Yeah. And then, you know, there's also uh, the issue of hormonal changes, you know, particularly in, in women right after they've given birth where their body's just been through so much and that can really cause a lot of emotional upheavals. And then, of course, there's the identity and role transitions for both partners, for both parents where, um, you know, before they were spouses or partners and they, you know, did a job or, or not. Um, but now they have added to the mix of their identity, this new parenting role. And sometimes that can really cause a lot of questioning about sort of what priority, you know, each individual places on the parenting versus their other roles and, and sort of, um, you know, questioning of values and questioning of your partner's value in terms of where on the priority list each role goes. And then, of course, there can be work upheaval, so shifts in um, either how much you're working, which, of course, can cause financial stress. So, for example, if one of the partners begins to work less or takes a 
parental leave or an unpaid parental leave, that can cause a lot of stress. Or if you go back to work, but you're feeling a lot of inner conflict about how much you're working versus how much you're able to engage in the parenting role, that can also cause a lot of um, sort of inner turmoil about your identity and also the balance of work and family, um, which, again, I, I think a lot about um, in terms of the impact that it has on individuals. And I think all of those things can really impact the relationship because um, we're sort of looking to our partner to help us figure it out or to make it easier. And sometimes they're going through the exact same thing at the same time and also looking for us to support them. And sometimes there just isn't enough support between the two people because there's so much stress and pressure and overwhelm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the rare person who doesn't grapple with some of those changes in, in their life and in their work life balance and whatnot, and to be sort of going through that, but be so stressed out where, and you not even have some, you know, the time to sit down and kind of talk it out in a really supportive way. You know, it's just a lot, it's a lot to deal with. And I mean, I even think just financially, the stress of that, it's like, how are we going to pay for, you know, this child? And a lot of people move. I, I, I didn't, but a lot of people, um, you know, sort of realize that their house housing arrangement isn't going to work out now that they have more family members. And so just whatever life transitions are coming up for people, I think that there's often sort of an inner inner struggle um, yeah, on that. Yeah, that's right. And what what tends to happen is you sort of take all of these different factors and, and probably more. And then at the same time, you just have less as a couple, you have like less to offer each other emotionally. So you're going through all this, but you're just so tired (laughs) and you're just, you're sort of like emotionally just exhausted anyway. And so those times to sort of sit down and connect and, and, and spend that sort of engaged time with each other. I mean, frankly, I think for most couples, it's just drastically reduced um, after, after children come into the picture, not only that, but physically, like the physical connection also very frequently changes. Um, It's just biologically sort of a fact that that women you know after childbirth and especially if they're breastfeeding their libido changes during that period and you know often again people are just so exhausted that there's less time to have sort of physical touch sexual or also just you know regular touch tends to to decline drastically during that period and so that's another way in which people connect and so both emotional and physical connection just kind of declines during that period Yep, that's absolutely right. And um, uh, in J- in Jancy Dunn's book, The How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids, um, she uh, cites Esther Perel, who talks about how women have a tendency to sort of direct a lot of their touch and sensual energy, not sexual, but sort of touch and intimate energy towards the baby. And that can be sort of a diversion of the energy that they used to direct towards their spouses. And that is something that um, the male spouse might feel um, pretty intently. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. It's like this little person has been sort of touching you and clinging to you all day. And so, you know, it's, the end of the day, you're just like, I don't want to be touched right we now. We don't want to be touched know. anymore. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And that, by the way, is true even with older children. I can speak to that from personal experience. Yeah. Right? If you've been having small people hanging on you all day at the end of the day, you, you just sort of don't want to be touched by anyone. Right. And, and that can be really hard on a relationship because touch is one of the ways that we form bonds and um, feel connected to our partner and, mm-hmm. and one of the ways that... Um, relationships are 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 sustained in really healthy fashions and and um once that becomes less available it does become a lot harder to feel that connection with your partner yeah we talked in our last episode on social connection about that sort of you know oxytocin kind of feeling you get from touch and physical contact and so it's an important bonding thing and so when it's not happening it kind of just affects how well you're sort of feeling that bond with each other yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that there are some unique frustrations in heterosexual relationships after babies arrive that um, are worth noting. So for women, I think there is a tendency and research bears this out that women 
continue to do more childcare hours, even when they're working similar hours as the male spouse. And, and so there can be a sense of inequality or imbalance in the relationship because um, it, even it, under the same working hours, women may be doing more of the childcare and more of the household work. Um, so there's also some evidence that men tend to choose more of the leisure type tasks. So that means that they may choose to engage in more child play as opposed to doing things like taking out the garbage or doing the dishes if there's kind of a choice between tasks. Um, and then there's also evidence that women tend to take on more of the mental load, sort of this idea that there's like a checklist of, oh, you know, we need to make sure that the doctor appointments are scheduled and that the, um, you know, immunizations are up to date and that the laundry is complete and that there's, you know, food for the week. That um, is something that women tend to take on more of as well as the emotional load. Like, is my baby, you know, feeling happy or their needs met is, um, are, are we sort of making sure that we're sort of attending to the emotional needs of, of our child? And husband's frustration, again, in, in the more traditional heterosexual couples may be a little bit different. So they may be feeling replaced in terms of attention, again, because women are likely to devote their central attention to the newborns and not have as much available for their spouse. Um, men may feel controlled, micromanaged, criticized, or gatekept. So in a way, because women tend to be socialized and, and maybe there's um, some biology that predisposes us to do this, we may have more strong opinions about how parenting should be be done, um, about how the house should be kept. That, that one's definitely socially <laughs> derived, I think. Um, but because of those opinions and our tendency to sort of feel like there's a way that we'd like to have it done, and, and because we are often the default sort of more domestic manager, uh, it may sort of put the husband in a position of feeling like whenever they make a, an effort to make a contribution that they get told that they're not doing it right or um, otherwise told, you know, that they're flawed in the way that they're making their attempt. And that can really de-incentivize their contributions and, and then make them less skilled and, and less motivated, yeah. um, which, of course, feeds into a dynamic as well. Well, I think that's important to keep in mind. Like, I, I know I'm always reading. I'm. It's just my interest. You know, I'm always reading about child development and different books on, you know, young kids. And so I'll forward him like articles or something like that. And I think to me, I think I'm being helpful, but I think he might feel like I'm criticizing. Oh, well, you're doing this wrong or that wrong or like I'm the expert and you're not kind of thing. And so I think it's can can be kind of subtle, but that it it is an important thing to look out for is are you, you know, putting this standard on your partner and, and as if you're way of doing things is right and they're wrong and think about how that feels. I know I don't like being told I'm doing things wrong. So, you know, yeah. it's a slippery yeah. thing. Yeah. I think that that is um, such a great point that, um, you know, I think there is actually a tendency for women, for, for, for mothers to be more interested in that kind of literature and, and sort of exploring like the right ways or the best ways to do things. And, um, you know, I think for, social reasons and, and just natural interest reasons, um, husbands and fathers may be less inclined to do that. And then they develop their own ways that feel more natural. And I think one of the things that I sort of focus on with the couples that I work with is that, you know, looking to the experts is one great way to find out information, but it doesn't mean that using your natural inclination and your natural style as a parent is the wrong way. It's just a different way. And the reality is both have pros and both have cons. And so mm -hmm. we'll talk a little bit about this in this, in the strategy section, in the tips um, section of, of this podcast episode. But I think that just remembering that each approach to parenting has pros and cons can help in the sense of um, you know, wanting to control or, or, or sort of manage the way that your partner parents because it can allow you to say, okay, well, the way that they're approaching this is different than mine, but it probably has benefits for the child and, and for their relationship compared to mine, right? And I'll, I'll offer different things and hopefully we can find a way to magnify the benefits that each of our approaches um, brings to the table. 
Well, yeah, and I mean, I think even if you look closely at the field, it's not like there's one right answer and everybody knows it right. and everything else is wrong. I mean, over time, okay. perspectives change and different, you know, depending on who you read, you'll get different ideas. So it's just really important to, to keep in mind that it's a lot more, it's not like a black black and white, right and wrong kind of thing with a lot of this stuff. So that might just allow a little bit of room for your your partner's perspective if it's different from your own. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So and, and I think that that all just kind of gets to this idea that, um, you know, it's really important for spouses to just, you know, give space for their partner to have a valid um, approach, a valid perspective, a valid sort of reason to value or, or to deprioritize something that may matter more or less to the other person. So um, this is kind of the last point about things that husbands may feel frustrated about is that they may get a sense that their perspective is invalidated or met with contempt or hostility by their spouse. And that can be, um, you know, one of the things that really contributes to uh, a diminishing marital happiness yeah. experience for, for both people. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, the Dunn book actually talks a lot just in terms of motivation to work on your marriage about the importance of of a, a happy marriage for children. So infants as young as six months old um, have been found to react negatively to argumentative voices. Babies raised by unhappily married parents are more likely to have developmental problems, and that ranges from potty training issues to difficulty self-soothing. Later, from ages about six to eight, um, the ch children raised with unhappy um in unhappy marriages, in households with unhappy marriages, may assume that they're the cause of the fight. Um, you, even later, kindergarten and on in elementary school, they are more likely to develop things like anxiety and depression. And and I think that just really can provide some motivation and certainly provided Jancy Dunn, um, the author, with motivation to work on the marriage because if you're not doing it for yourself, it, it is really important to do it for your children. And I, I just want to say, too, that the cure is not to not fight with your spouse because fighting is a part of healthy relationships, right? You're not married to yourself, so you're going to not see eye to eye mm -hmm. from time to time, probably more often than not. <laughs> but what is important is to find ways to fight in healthy and productive uh, styles with your spouse. And it's important not for your child to never see you fight, but to see a good model of what does it look like for two loving people who are respectful to disagree and to do it in a way that is productive and, and, and not necessarily kind all the time, but, but respectful and, and healthy. Yeah. So that's kind of the point of this. Yeah. And we have some, some concrete suggestions about ways that you can basically improve how you fight with each other. Um, and, and certainly there's some people who go a lot more into depth about this. Gottman's book is really great for that. And, and if, again, if you want some motivation, I think along the same lines of what you were saying, there's a quote that comes up in the Gottman book, the greatest gift you can give your baby is a happy and strong relationship between the two of you. So it's, it may be worth working on um, some of these things just because that's something really important to, to do for your children. The first tip that we thought was important is, is to just keep some perspective. I mean, I think for me, this is really useful. I'm, I'm sort of just uh, turning the corner on the first year of my third baby's life and, and three children. And I do know that, you know, it, it is the sleep deprivation at least is um, temporary. And that's helpful to know that, you know, the, some of the things that are especially hard um, are temporary and, and will at some point in the near future than it feels like it is, <laughs> uh, will be in the rear view mirror. And sometimes it is really just helpful to remember that. Yeah, we're all, Gottman says, we're all in the same soup. I think it's helpful to, to recognize that some of this is just like part of the normal process at this phase that will get better. <laughs> A lot of yes. it will. <laughs> Maybe not all of it. Okay, suggestion and strategy number two is fight better. So this is a little bit of a long one where I'm going to talk about a couple things that, that came out of the Gottman book. And again, just remember that, that you're teaching your kids when they, they are observing what you're doing, especially as they get older, like they're paying attention. And it's really important to keep your values in mind, to remember that, you know, you care about being a good parent. You probably care <laughs> about your spouse, even if you may have forgotten. Um, and that, that, you know, 
kids benefit from knowing that people can fight and still love each other. Um, so Gottman talks about four really problematic ways that people can disagree in a couple relationship. So when you get into criticism, just really like attacking the other person in the couple, um, defensiveness, like where you just won't hear any possibility that, that, um, you sort of shut down around any, any, um, piece of your role in the situation stonewalling where you just like do the silent treatment or shut the person out or just don't even you know talk or open up at all and then contempt and actually contempt I think is the worst one and that's basically mm -hmm. when you just get really like mean when you attack the other person when you get really sarcastic and just sort of mean and nasty and so those are all those are his sort of four most problematic behaviors and so it, a good place to start would be to notice, you know, if you're doing criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling or contempt, um, you know, try to figure out a different way to relate because those are all super unhelpful for your relationship. He also recommends a softer start. So when you have a problem in your relationship, a lot of times we're like right in the heat of the moment and we just go for the jugular just right then and there and it can just lead to a really big escalation. And so Gottman recommends, you know, first of all, just timing it <laughs> better and just starting in a gentle way. You know, honey, there's something I really wanted to talk to you about. There's something that, you know, I'm, I'm not terribly thrilled with right at the moment or, you know, even using a little bit of humor or just starting in a gentle way. Cause I think when you start with an attack, it tends to make the situation so much worse. So think about how you start raising these issues and, and just work on that. Um, similarly, cool down conflict. So taking time to kind of regulate your emotions, take a break if you need to just approach it from a place where you're not in this super heated, like, very, very emotionally charged place where you're, it's just going to be really hard to have a sort of calm, respectful conversation. You might need to just soothe, kind of um, regulate your own emotions a little bit first. And make a repair effort if you said or done something hurtful. So a repair effort is like the classic example, of course, is to say, I'm sorry, or to sort of acknowledge that you did something or to like reach out in a loving way to the person. So a repair effort is a way to sort of acknowledge and and just sort of own your piece of it or, or extend the olive branch to your partner. And really, it can go a long way toward improving the situation. It can keep you from like staying mad for a long time to kind of like working toward figuring out a solution. So make repair efforts when you need to. And then finally, we've already kind of said this, but it's so important, is to really try to understand your partner's perspective, that there are many valid points of view. I think there's some research that wives feel better when their husbands make an effort to understand why they're upset. So um, more so than husbands for some reason, but the perception of making an effort seems to really just make a big difference. Um, so just keeping in mind that there's, there's multiple points of view. And instead of focusing on convincing the other person that you're right, focus more on trying to understand where they're coming from. Yeah. And what I often tell couples on that front is, is to just focus on effectiveness. Cause even if you're sort of really angry, we, and you know, we all get angry with our spouses. If we want something for our spouse, if we can just kind of pause and just say, well, if there's something I want, what's the best strategy to get it? Right. <laughs> Usually coming hard at your partner is not the best way. It, it may sort of provide a release of all that angry energy, but ultimately it's not going to get you what you want. You're not going to get heard. You're not going to make an impact or an, uh, sort of increase the likelihood of of being understood or, or of getting any sort of practical thing that you're really longing for in that moment. Um, instead, when we sort of come hard at our partner, they're more likely to dig their heels in to become defensive or to stonewall us yeah. or to attack back. And, and that really makes it a lot less likely that we are going to get what we want. Right. And so strategically, that, it works yeah. better too, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, it can be really hard to sort of pause when we're, um, again, sleep deprived and going through all these things. And I think that's a part of what makes it so hard when you have very young children is oh, that yeah. even just that moment of pausing and saying, okay, wait, what am I trying to do here? <laughs> can be really hard to access because we're just not um, thinking straight because we're 
so exhausted. Right. And it's hard to find those moments to just kind of, you know, chill out. Well, and for anyone that, for anyone who wants to learn more about these strategies, I really do recommend, I mean, it's a, the bulk of this book, Baby and Baby Makes Three, so I'd recommend kind of maybe checking that out if you want to really work on these skills. He has he goes a bit deeper into these areas. Yeah, so useful. Um, and then I'll, I'll sort of su- suggest another um, set of communication skills, which um, Jancy Dunn goes into. So she actually diagnoses herself as somebody who really comes at her husband with a lot of contempt, a lot of sarcasm. She actually goes to see a therapist at one point in the book and he tells her that she's verbally abusive. And so she really took the idea of improving her communication strategies very seriously. And at one point, She sort of gets this idea of, wouldn't it be useful if my husband had some hostage negotiator skills to help sort of diffuse my anger? And so she ended up interviewing an FBI hostage negotiator, and he walked her through some of the strategies that they use, and she employs them to great effect. So the five steps of a hostage negotiator are active listening, showing empathy, building rapport, gaining influence, um, and then making a movement towards behavior change. And so the the contrast of those strategies would be um, the ineffective approaches of intimidating, demeaning, lecturing, criticizing, or evaluating. Those are sort of the kinds of things that would set you up to, as a hostage negotiator, Mm. to just kind of put put the terrorist or whoever on the defense and, and have them be really inflexible to working with you. But in terms of um, active listening, and I think the Gottman um, book also goes into this in some more detail, but this idea of active listening, which is really a powerful piece of communication, is paraphrasing what your partner is saying, um, doing some motion labeling. So instead of um, sort of responding from your own perspective, sort of reflecting like, oh, it sounds as though you're feeling sad or frustrated or or even angry, Um, offering minimal encouragement. So "Hmm, tell me more Uh, mirroring. So kind of reflecting back uh, what it is that they're telling you using open ended questions, using I messages and then allowing effective pauses. So really kind of staying in the listener mode can be really helpful if your partner is angry to diffuse their anger. And what I also often um, talk to couples about is sort of to really stay in the discussion mode and not get into problem solving because that um, discussion mode is really where you can help take your partner's negative emotion down a little bit. If, if somebody feels heard, if they're feeling angry or hurt or disappointed, feeling heard and understood can really help them feel a, lo- a lot better, right? It doesn't fix anything, but being understood, um, there's something so powerfully healing about that process. And mm-hmm. that's really what therapy is about. So we certainly know that um, from our experience as therapists, but that can really be helpful in um, a conflict with your spouse as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't score keep. That's really important not to score keep. Oh, um, but it's so tempting. I know it's so tempting. <laughs> I unloaded and the dishwasher X number of times, right? <laughs> totally. I mean, I think score, pe- score keeping is exactly why there are so many arguments about um, house division of household yeah. labor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's so possible to 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 stay away from. But I think um, just in terms of effectiveness, it doesn't really get you what you want. No. I mean, I think talking more directly with your spouse about what it is that you'd like to do or, or to have them do is more effective than sort of going at them with a, I did more than you did and trying to prove your point in that way. But I, I'm guilty of that too. <laughs> um, <laughs> or if you do score, keep in your own head, just keep that to yourself. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. bite, bite your tongue. A lot of marriage is about biting your tongue. Yeah. Um, actually, my husband tells me that. <laughs> if that yeah. tells you anything about how I approach it. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and then Gottman also talks about, yeah, sharing your hidden soft emotions. So not just the anger, but often anger is a secondary emotion to hurt. So sharing the primary emotion of feeling hurt, um, you know, uh, de- de- devalued or, or sort of ignored that those can be sort of the softer emotions. 
and state your need clearly, and then also accept influence and compromise. I think that this is a big part of where spouses get stuck is that we get kind of into this mode of, well, I know the way that we can do better. It would be if you did X, Y, or Z, as opposed to saying, you know, this is upsetting. How can we figure this out together in a way that sort of honors what what I'm telling you is bothering me, but also that honors that you have your own um, perspective and your own needs in this exact scenario. Um, so I think that being willing to accept your spouse's influence and being willing to compromise is, is really critically important to getting through um, a difficult um conflict. And then if you're deadlocked, which which certainly happens and happens to everyone, um, take a break. Um, make sure that if you take a time out that you make a time back in so that the person who's um, really upset or, or both people who are really upset don't feel like they've been abandoned or um, prohibited from sharing what it is that they're feeling or thinking. Um, and then during that break, Try not to ruminate about what a terrible person you're, you know, it can be really difficult not to get in, stuck in this narrative about your partner that um, just really demonizes them. And, you know, try to remind yourself that your partner is a good person and try to shift your attention to something calming, meditation, going for a walk, um, you know, going shopping, whatever it is that can just calm you down. And so when you return to the conversation after your time out, that you're sort of in a, in a place where you are willing to kind of engage in a positive fashion. Yeah, that may be more helpful than just going through your mind about all the <laughs> terrible fantasies you're having about what you'd like to do to this person <laughs> when you're angry. Well, yeah. Or like the fantasies about like how they don't care about how you feel yeah. or they yeah. you know, don't bother to try, right? So we, I find myself, and I certainly know this from the couples that I see, that um, it's just so easy to get stuck in this like storyline about like what a terrible person your partner is when yeah. we're upset with them. Yeah, definitely. So there were a lot, I think we just talked about the sort of fighting better and the communication um, tools. And there were so many like suggestions within a suggestion. I th And I want to just say like this, these suggestions take a lot of practice and especially if it's some of this is newer behavior. And so just to recognize that it might take a little bit more work than just listening to this podcast in terms of, you know, maybe just trying this stuff out. Um, it's easier said than done. So we went through it pretty quickly, but, um, you know, it could be something that's worth putting a little bit of effort into, especially if Absolutely. some of these really stand out as like, oh, yeah, that's a problem for me. Yeah. Okay. So tip four, make housework work. Um, there's, I mean, there's no like simple, easy answer to this. Believe me. I mean, this is something we struggle with in my household, but, um, you know, just trying to figure out something that that feels fair um and there's a quote equitable doesn't mean equal it just means fair like just trying to compromise or figure out something workable um there's some research that couples with young children who more evenly split housework have better sex lives and children who do better in school and are less likely to need psychiatric intervention so there's some benefits um for kids and for couples when there's there's some sort of fair arrangement. And, you know, again, this this isn't easy and it may look different in different households, but a couple things to do or to look at, you know, a list like the one Gottman has or generate your own and just say, you know, kind of try to figure out who's going to do what and, and help people find things that they sort of prefer to do um, just to make the, the split work. But some, you know, um, sometimes actually you have to realize that, your standards may need to loosen up a little bit. I think this can be especially true when one, when the standards are different and one partner has really like one thing's done a certain way and maybe has some perfectionism or higher standards of cleanliness. It may not be worth the damage to the relationship to kind of keep things a certain way. You might have to just let some things go and do less and just realize that, again, this is a situation where there's not necessarily a right or wrong, like whether you clean the bathroom every other day versus once every six months, like those are just different standards of cleanliness. <laughs> and, um, you know, again, you may need to find a middle ground and you may need to just recognize that there's no right or wrong. Just figure out something that works. Yeah, I, I, the, I can think of so many examples of this because my husband is really good about, um, 
being more low key about various things, but I used to sort of have this idea like our children needed to be bathed every night and we used to argue about it all the time. It was, you know, I would feel like the kids were so grimy and he would say, you're crazy. They do not need to be bathed every night. They are small children. And it, takes a lot of time and a lot of resources to bathe them every night. Mm. We now have three children. And so, um, you know, slowly over time, I accepted his influence and we now bathe the children two or three times a week on an average week. And it's sometimes less and, and it has been okay, right? The, yeah. They're sometimes a little grimier than I ideally would want. But what, if I don't let myself get bothered by it, it's actually not such a big deal. And there's so many examples like that in yeah. my relationship, some that I've handled better than others where the difference in our style or our standards um, is pretty, it feels vast, but when I'm willing to accept influence and compromise, it it turns out not to be so bad. It's just a different preference. And if I'm willing to let it go and um, see the value in the way that he does things differently, it it can go a lot better and and vice versa, of course, you know, it it helps when he also accepts my influence as well. Yeah. Well, and I know for myself, sometimes what I do is I start doing all this stuff that I feel, oh, we need to do this and that and this and that. And then I'm like mad at him because I'm like, well, I did all this stuff and you didn't. And it's like, okay, I kind of took that on myself and nobody forced me. So, you know, if I'm going to take on all this extra, you know, housework or whatever, then that's my choice to do so. But I think I put that expectation on myself. So, you know, just to realize that maybe a better approach would be to either not do it or to recognize that that's my choice. Um, And if I want to do it, fine, but it's, you know, it's not really fair to blame someone else for something that I did. You know, right, right, right. And so that's the idea of letting some things go, um, which I think is really hard. And I, I certainly experience that a lot myself where I feel like I just I wish I cared about fewer things. Right. So it, it sort of becomes my own challenge. But that that actually is not my partner's fault. It's not his fault that I want an ambitious career and I want a clean house and I want to essentially be a full-time parent, right? That's not his fault. Right. It does make me tired and cranky sometimes because I just sort of reach the end of my limit, but there are choices that I can make, um, that, that, you know, he can be helpful, but it's not ultimately up to him. And so I think that, you know, what you're saying is so um, resonant with me in terms of saying, you know, it's my values and it's my choices. And certainly I want him to help, but ultimately he's not at fault if there's a lot of things that I want to do or that matter to me. Yeah. Yeah. See, we're all in the same soup, right? (laughs) We're all in the same soup. Yeah. Um, So the next tip on here is to streamline decision making. So this is kind of um, just a way of lightening the load. So uh, there's this concept in psychology called decision fatigue, where every time we need to sort of decide whether we're going to do or not do something, um, it it sort of taxes us cognitively. And so anything that you can make automatic just eliminates that level of cognitive load that you take on. So you know how most of us, hopefully, um, just automatically brush our teeth every day. We don't have to think about it. We just do it. It's a task that takes some energy, but it takes so much less energy because we've made it just kind of a a habit. So anything that you can make a habit reduces the amount of energy that you have to devote to it. So things like making the lunches or even, um, I think when it comes to housework, just making automatic, like who does what can you know, in a way that feels fair enough for the two of you can be really helpful. So if your partner sort of just is in charge of um, the children's laundry and you can be in charge of doing the dishes or you can even sort of designate certain days of the week that you're in charge of various things, but make it automatic so that you don't have to negotiate it every time the decision comes up with your partner. Oh and man, that, that really sounds nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good it takes some planning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the next tip is to recognize our, the unhelpful story. So this is, again, um, and I mentioned this earlier, but I think it can't be emphasized enough, is sort of the role that our narrative, uh, the narrative that we get sucked into when we're upset with our spouse can play in how we engage with them, how that conflict can um, can look and can play out. So, you know, recognize that your mind comes up with stories to explain why you're unhappy. And this is, um, I think, really important when we think about just the 
the physical toll that having young children takes. So if you're tired, if you're worn out, if you're stressed out, if you're going through hormonal changes, you're feeling pretty physically uncomfortable. And one of the things that your mind does is it tries to come up with a reason. And our partner can become the explanation, right? Because um, they're an easy target, right? They're not our innocent, angelic newborn. Um, and also because we often look to our partner to kind of help us feel better. And so if we're not able to feel better, even for reasons that have nothing to do with our partner, our mind may explain that our partner is the cause. And one of the things that I think is really interesting, and this comes from research out of Jonathan Haidt's lab. He's actually a social psychologist who studies morality, but he has this wonderful metaphor called the elephant and the rider, where he talks about how the elephant is our gut intuition, is kind of the source of our feelings and our beliefs at sort of a gut non-logical level. Um, and we often think that the rider of the elephant is in charge, sort of our rational, strategic, logical thinking, but it's actually the elephant who's more mm. in charge, our feelings, <laughs> our gut intuition, and our strategic reasoning follows. So we feel something and then we rationalize why we feel it. We find a reason for why we feel it. And I think for a lot of couples with young children, who are dealing with all these physical discomforts and sort of stressors, it's really easy for our mind to just land on, oh, it's our partner, of course. Uh-huh. And, and that It's all your fault. <laughs> right, right. So allow yourself to look for some disconfirming evidence for that um, and to kind of realize that it is a hard time and that your partner is likely not the cause, even if your mind wants to create that story mm-hmm. because it's sort of a simple, clever and interesting story, right, which yeah. is the those are the stories that are that we get caught up with. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing to be aware of if, if you're kind of taking all of everything and sort of targeting, blaming it on your partner or targeting them as the, the cause. It's like, huh, maybe let's look at some other things going on. Right. Yep. Yeah. So our next tip, this is tip number seven, learn to live with it. So this one is about, this came from the Gottman book too. Um, this is about just sort of recognizing that in every couple, there are certain issues that will never go away. <laughs> You're never going to resolve some of this stuff. So there's a list actually of, of perpetual issues in the Gottman book, like differences in cleanliness, differences in how of sort of emotional expression, differences in how, um, you know, optimal sexual frequency, like one person wants more physical contact than the other, differences in approaching finances, differences in parenting approaches. I mean, there's so many things on this list. And I think one thing that, that can we can get sort of caught up in is believing that, that we have to like fix this stuff. Um, when in fact, sometimes it's just sort of a fundamental difference that's just going to be there. And so one thing that can be helpful to consider is that maybe not to say that you shouldn't ever talk about it or that you shouldn't work it out, but that you should at some level at least just sort of accept that you and your partner aren't going to be the same in terms of all of these things. And instead of trying to focus on fixing something that can't be fixed, just figure out a way to, to make it work and just sort of have some acceptance that this is going to be sort of an ongoing thing. And I think that can help you just sort of loosen your grip on this desire to to solve it or fix it. Um, you know, might be there, yeah. might have been there 10 years ago, it might be there 10 years from now. And if you can just sort of recognize that, then maybe you can just kind of have a little bit more acceptance. Yeah, absolutely. And the the way that I often talk to couples about this issue, this this sort of idea of like there being irreconcilable differences between the two of you is that couples who um, approach that difference as a team. So like, OK, it's us versus that difference. Um, and how and, and the solution is really how do we as a team manage the fact that we feel differently about this or that we approach this differently or we have different preferences, um, then it can actually be a bridge to feeling more connected as opposed to something that is feels divisive between the two of you. And taking that team approach can can really help you feel um, like you're managing it instead of allowing it to sort of um, create conflict between you two. Mm hmm. Um, yeah. And the, the other thing that there's a lot of research, um, to, to back up, and this was actually something that I focused some of my graduate research on is this idea of positive illusions. So the ability to overlook what we don't like about our partners is actually one of the things that predicts happy relationships. And so, you know, I think that we, we are, um, often controlled by our minds, but 
but we don't have to be all the time, right? We have some influence over what we allow our minds to think about and what we sort of decide we're going to redirect our attention. And I think that knowing that it doesn't really help to sort of perseverate on something you don't like about your partner can be helpful, right? Because you could say, well, it is what it is. I'm going to think about something else. For example, some of the things that I really love about my partner. And there's this great quote by Ben Franklin, which is keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterward. (laughs) And I think that that's really useful, right? You know, there are some things that are just core to who your partner is. They're not going to change. Harping on them makes them feel bad, makes you frustrated. It is more useful instead to focus on the things that you like and, and sort of try to direct away from the things that bother you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try that eyes half shut. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to ignore certain things. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, touch and talk. So we talked a lot about a bit about how um, there's a change in couple sex lives after the arrival of small people. Um, and I think that one of the important things is just to accept that things might be different for a while. Um, you know, the libido drop is normal, biologically based. If the wife is breastfeeding, um, certainly the lack of sleep and the feeling, the heightened feeling of stress can impact both people's libido. Um, if there is one partner who wants to continue to have sex at the same rate as you were having sex before children, I think, you know, having conversations about it using the communication tips above can be really important. Be willing to include non-sexual physical contact. I mean, that can actually be a bridge to increasing sexual intimacy anyway. And even in the absence of sexual intimacy, that non-sexual physical touch can promote bonding, as you were saying, you know, with the oxytocin release um, in, in sort of a biological way and certainly in an experiential way. Um, it can be really helpful. And one of the other things that I talk a lot with couples about is sort of expanding the definition of sexual intimacy during that first um, year of having a new child in your life when the libido is low. So, you know, thinking about things other than sexual intercourse as ways to uh, be sexually intimate with one another if it feels like intercourse just feels off the table for, you know, a time, for example, when the wife is breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think even sometimes that type of non-sexual touch can feel like it takes some effort, you know, because, you know, again, we talked about sometimes you're just tired of being touched and you just have nothing left to give. But, you know, those little things can make a difference. Um, Just a hug or a cuddle or a hand holding or something like that. So trying to make that effort here and there might be worthwhile. Okay, so one more tip, um, engage dads. So there's there's a lot of research about the importance of dads being involved with the family, with the kids. You know, this is kind of assuming a, a heterosexual couple, but it could also apply to same-sex couples. Um, dads sometimes have like a different role in terms of how they play with the kids and how they interact with the kids and in terms of sort of their role to the family. But I do think that piece about that you mentioned earlier, Yael, about how sometimes dads feel sort of shut out. And so if you can find a way, whatever it looks like in your particular arrangement, for the dad to to get more involved, um, it just has a lot of benefits for everyone. So um, part of it is just, you know, kind of letting, allowing the fathers to be themselves and to be engaged as much as possible. And sometimes I think that, you know, in a heterosexual couple where there's some gender roles at play that can involve, you know, certain um, like things that tend to default to the the mom or, or standards where it's like, I want things done a certain way. It's like, just let go of that and get the father in as much as possible. So like you might, moms, I think sometimes feel uncomfortable with those little baby period with the periods with the little babies just leaving and allowing the father to do things like what if he forgets a snack or what if he doesn't bring a change of clothes or what if he does the nap two hours later than I do and and I, I get that that can be really hard but sometimes that can be like the best thing to help the father just figure it out for himself yeah and one of the things that I I like to um, think about is is just the skill-based piece of it is that when mothers do this sort of, you know, it has to be this way. And if it's the other way, then that could be a disaster. And that ends up shutting out the the father. It 
can really prevent skills from being built. Like, exactly. you know, mothers too learn, have a learning curve. And, and we just, uh, you know, especially in, in these sort of more traditional heterosexual couple, especially if the mother is nursing, right, the learning curve happens earlier. There's a lot of one-on-one contact between the mother and the baby in those early months that the father may have less of. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to have to go through their own learning curve and it is sort of up to the mother, the wife, to make space for that to happen in a in a non-criticizing, non-sort of damning way, because otherwise it becomes very uncomfortable to sort of feel like you're being observed and judged and criticized as you're going through a learning process. I mean, if, if we can put ourselves in that position, it would sort of make us say, well, no thanks, I'd prefer to just stay right. over here, do my own thing. Um, but it does, you know, it requires us to say, if it's done not my way, or if it's done even in a way that objectively I, I don't prefer, it really is okay. And oftentimes, you know, we, we sort of have this narrative, and I, I, I'm using the word narrative so much, but our, our minds tell us things like, you know, it would, it could never happen that way. Or if I wasn't there, you know, my child wouldn't eat. Or if that diaper put, gets put on backwards, it's going to be an absolute disaster. It may not be ideal, but it probably will be okay. And I right. think that we need to sort of correct our minds from these catastrophic conclusions that we come to if it's kids, not done the exact way that yeah, we want. Kids have survived worse things than, yes. um, you know, mismatched clothes and a late nap. So, exactly. yeah. Perspective taking can be handy there too. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think the final thing is just to remember to turn toward each other, you know, turn toward each other in friendship with humor, be in it together, you know, think about it. Um, you know, in the military, they sometimes have a friend that you call a battle buddy and, and, you know, going through young life with young children can feel like that sometimes. Um, but, you know, try to turn toward each other instead of on each other, you know, think of your partner as your teammate, even if, you know, you don't see things exactly the same way you're that it is okay to not see things exactly the same way as your teammate, but you're still a teammate when it comes down to it. Yeah. And I think humor can go a long way. Like my husband and I, so the song we danced to at our wedding, which I'll spare you my singing voice, but do you know that song, La Vie en Rose? Mm-hmm. Give your heart and soul to me and life will always be La Vie en Rose. So we'll look at each other at these moments when we're like up to our elbows in a poopy diaper and there's like a screaming toddler in the other room. And we'll look at each other and be like, is this what they meant by La Vie en Rose? You know, because like we, it's almost like you have to like, join each other in the absurdity of it all (laughs) to some degree to be like oh my gosh I cannot believe we're doing this but if it feels like you're doing it together with a little bit of humor and then also savoring those moments I think when it's like you're seeing your kid do something awesome and amazing and you're just like oh my gosh this is so cool Um, those are moments that you can actually connect if you do turn toward each other Right, right. Yeah. I mean, we're sort of talking about like the first year, the younger years of having children is so difficult and painful. And that is true. But it is also true that they are hilarious and so fun and so full of joy and meaning. And so if you can find ways to get through the difficult moments, and as you said, savor the joyful, funny ones together, and you know, that that can be so bonding and so fun and, um, you know, such a gift to have a partner to go through that experience with. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you don't want to lose that. I mean, that's, that's an important thing and I think it can get lost in the hard stuff. Yeah, it it can. And it does, I mean, it, it it can get lost without, without some effort to nourish it. And, And I think that it can be hard to find the resources to nourish it, but it is important to try to find moments where there are some resources available even if they're very small, um, and, and direct them towards your relationship. So, you know, one of the examples that Gottman gives is um, that happy couples regularly respond to one another's bids for connection. So, you know, if your partner is reaching out, you know, respond favorably, even if you're feeling really tired. I mean, you can even say, you know, I'm not in the mood to have sex tonight, but I do love you so much. You know, you can sort of respond favorably to a bid for a connection or attention from your partner without um, dishonoring your own needs, but but to sort of, you know, provide some loving response to them, even mm-hmm. if you're feeling low on resources. Yeah, just a small amount of that can go a long way, though. Just a Absolutely. little bit of, of room for attention and connection. 
Well, thank you so much, Jael. This has been really a fun topic, and um, I think actually I'm going to you know, keep some of these things in consideration, and I hope that's true for our listeners as well. Um, and thank you very, very much. Oh, it's such a pleasure. This is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.